Hi, and welcome to The Backlot. I'm David Nelson, creative director of The Backlot, and today we have for you a special or a unique episode. You could probably tell because here I am, and you don't typically hear me, but recently I had the opportunity to sit down with the lead actor, as well as the director of one of our student-directed plays, Ugly Lies the Bone. They were kind enough to come into the studio today and sit down with us and talk a little bit about their experience with the student-directed play, as well as meeting the writer herself, Lindsay Ferentino. I had a lot of fun in the studio with them, and I think you're going to enjoy it. I am here with a former student. She was here in our one-year program, has just graduated and done a student-directed play. Hello, I'm Kako de Broika, and I directed Ugly Lies the Bone at New York Film Academy. Coco was also one of our social media correspondents whoop, whoop. <laughs> yeah. and has been very tied to the school. It's been really fantastic. And we have the lead actress in the play. Hi, I'm uh, Isabel Germain. I'm a BFA acting student, and I played Jessica Knox in Ugly Lies the Bone. So, Coco, where are you from? How did you find us? How did... <laughs> so, I'm from Germany, and it was funny because I first went to London, and in London I auditioned for NYFA, New York. And after a year, I came to L.A. for my AFA degree here. You, you had an interesting story in how you got here, yeah. if I remember right. What, what is yeah. that? <laughs> so I come from nothing. Like, when I got the acceptance to New York Film Academy, New York, I was like, oh, my God, I don't know how to do this. Because in Germany, like, colleges are basically free. And everyone was like, you're nuts. Why are you going abroad? Like, why do you go to the U.S.? So I ended up crowdfunding my tuition. <laughs> I mean, it somehow all comes together because this crowdfunding campaign basically taught me how to edit. But I think you got to start somewhere. And that basically made it possible for me to study at NYFA. And I always say I'm acting change because I want to change people's perspectives on differences. And also I'm an actor with a cerebral palsy. That's also a thing why I went abroad originally, because acting schools in Germany see disability as an obstacle in a way and not an opportunity. That's why I came here. <laughs> wow, that's fascinating. And it's something we're going to talk about a little bit later. But before we do, um, we have another guest here with us, Isabel Germain, who is the lead in the play. Um, Isabel, why don't you tell us a little about yourself? So I, uh, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, and I went to this conference where they were doing auditions for colleges, and I just did a general audition. And this guy came up to me from the New York campus in Little Potunk, Georgia, and he's like, I need you to come to this school. Please come to this school for me. And I, I ended up doing it, and he's the sweetest little thing. And I went to the New York campus first because I told my mom, said this is a perfect opportunity because I had multiple places to go. She said, New York Film Academy will give you New York and L.A. And you can get a degree in less than four years, so I think that you should do it. So I went off to New York, did the year conservatory, came to L.A., and here we are. Did you guys have some favorite teachers in New York? There was Amy Van Horn, <laughs> yeah, number one. Oh, my God, I'm blanking. Vic uh, Victor, Victor Hagee. Rob Roy, he's not in with Knife anymore, but he was amazing. Um, Michael Labson. Michael Labson. Oh, yes. Drew Hirschfield, I don't know if Annika. he's still there. Annika. We must say Annika. Annika. Amazing. Yeah. I taught with Michael in Abu Dhabi. Michael Labson? Yeah, sweetest man. He's like an adopted grandfather slash uncle <laughs> slash yes. amazing man. I love teachers that care about you. Teachers that can identify people who try and people who don't, because yeah. that's 
if you don't get a group of great kids who all love it, some people will and some people won't. Yeah. I love teachers that can not only inspire the group that love to act and want to do it, but at the same time care about them actually as people. You know, going to New York and starting off like that, having such hard but understanding teachers was yeah. so great. Yeah, also they all know what they're talking about mm -hmm. because they're all actors themselves. One thing that I always say is that if I find someone who doesn't like a teacher because they're too hard, mm -hmm. I don't believe that. Every teacher that's treating you harshly sees potential and wants you to rise to that potential. Yeah. 100%. Nobody's coming to this school and pushing you just because they want to be annoying. In New York especially, we had teachers who just push and go above and beyond. And yeah. outside of class will be like, how are you doing? Invite me to shows. Let me know what you need help with. That's what this should be about. Yeah. Connecting teachers, actors, you know, all that kind of stuff. I would say I learned the most from instructors who pushed you the most. Mm -hmm. Like, instructors who knew that you could do better. My favorite thing that directors say is after you do a scene and after you work, they go, what did you think? What could you do better? And they don't say anything because a lot of times kids in these classes will just regurgitate what the teachers are saying and they won't listen. Asking kids, what do you think went well? is setting them up for success. Because in the real world, you're not going to go on set and they're not going to be like, well, I think you did this really well and your objective is this. Mm -hmm. They're not. No, nobody cares. Nobody cares. No, and one student here said it's all about the result. In the end, they don't care how you got there. The fact that you get there, that's mm -hmm. the main thing. I was afraid of this experience, but in the end, you're not alone. And there are always people wanting to help. For uh, maybe people who are listening who don't know the play, what has happened to Jess? Describe oh. that for us. So basically what happened was Jess was a school teacher and her mother got so ill that they had to put her into a home and they needed money. So Jess went into the army. She gets brutally injured on the job and she's completely burned and she can't walk. She can't move. Her leg got broken really badly. She was in the hospital for 14 months and then gets flown back to Florida where she's from And so she has to deal with not only being burned, you know, going through that trauma, coming back to this world that she thought that she hated, but she loves because it's her home. And then also to people that aren't the same. You know, she hasn't seen her mom in forever. Her sisters are caretakers, so she's different. And then, you know, Stevie, her love interest, is now married, thinking about having kids. It sets you up for a emotional roller coaster. That's why I'm so happy that the beginning is funny. Because <laughs> if the beginning wasn't funny, Just be so sad. Mm. Yeah. That's why my mentor for the production, David Robinette, and also Kathy. Um, Love them. Sorry. Yeah. Shout out. <laughs> They both said you have to really crush the first part of the play. Like, there's so much comedy going on. It's, like, really, like, a comic relief. And if that's not <laughs> there, then the audience can't really be set up for the dramatic Yeah, because you're given just this, you know, immediately you see her with the burns and everything, and as an audience, you're thinking, oh, my goodness, this yeah. is going to be sad. This mm. is going to be sad, sad, sad. She comes into this world with her sister, who's so cute. She wants everything to be perfect and nice and neat, and everything's happy, and Jess is this cynical, dry, funny character that gets thrown into this mess, and it's just so fun to see her navigating these people who are kind of like, I don't know how to deal with you mm. now, because mm. you're burned. Looks like you and Kelvin really hit it off. Is that really his name? 
What do you mean, is that his name? I've been talking to you about Kelvin for the last year. Yeah, on the phone. I thought you were saying Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> we met on one of those free websites. Maybe the L was a typo. <laughs> Very funny. So let's let's talk about how did you find the play and what maybe <laughs> made you decide this is a play you wanted to tackle. It's kind of romantic because we were... <laughs> We met each other at the New York Conservatory me, in New York. Yeah, me and Coco have known each other for the longest time that I've known yeah. anybody at NYFA. Because we came from New York, and we were in the same class starting off. And in our first semester, we read this play. And it was such a challenging role, also, like, both mentally, physically. Like, it was great that we started off like that, mm -hmm. like... Um, our instructor really challenged us with her, but it was a great experience. Yeah, it was a little snippet we got. Every one of us got a scene. And so starting from that small space, you think, maybe I can do this. Like, I don't know, maybe, probably. And then getting cast as Jessica, it was kind of like, I have to. There's no maybe, probably, could be. It's I have to and I have to do it 100%. Mm. And if anything, you know, mental, physical, it's emotional. It's so emotional. It's emotionally draining. Every night, just going through that, roller coaster of, you know, feelings and emotions and playing it truthfully. Mm. And it's all tied together. Like, mm. that's the beauty about this play is that the scenes all bleed into one another, both emotionally, but also, like, scene-wise, set-wise. Yeah, my, my friend came to the show and she said, one of my favorite parts about this show, you had blackouts in between scenes, but you could definitely see Jess's emotional, like, overflow. I went from one scene and I was that way in the next scene because yeah. it's life. And it's so organically incorporated into mm -hmm. one another. It's a whole, it's a little bit like a clock. Like it's, it's really sophisticated. When you started working on it way back in New York, was the thought then we're going to do this together? No. And there was a surprise. No. I had no idea she was even directing the show. Yeah. One of my <laughs> teachers came up to me in uh, Knife and goes, well, I think you should audition for her. Ugly Lies the Bone. And I said, oh my gosh, I know that show. I love that show. I look at the poster for auditions and it was your name. And I was like, no way. <laughs> this all ties perfectly together. And I don't know, I think it was meant to be because we had to have gone through all of that to work together so well. So what about the show? Because it's very interesting content. I feel like there's a lot to talk about and we will. I kind of want to like break down what you were thinking with it. But mm -hmm. what drew you to this play in the first place that you felt connected enough to direct it? So back when we first started working on the play, like both Isabel and me, we both played Jess. We practiced on Jess and she succeeded. I felt desperate, like, <laughs> and I remember that one night I was writing my instructor because I said, I felt so stuck with Jess. I don't know what to do because my instructor back in New York gave me the rooftop scene, the, the love scene. Jess, it, look, Jess, it's hard for me. I know what I Be look like. No, no, it's not that. It's just that your eyes look exactly the same. And it was just so hard. Well, yeah, that's how it all started off for me. I don't know how you felt about Jess at first, like when we did it. Well, I didn't have as tough a scene when we first got introduced to it. I had one of the scenes at the very beginning where I, you're meeting, you know, Jess's love interest from back when, you know, her ex-fiance. Yeah, in the yeah. gas station. Welcome to Space Coast Convenience. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anybody who would 
That's kind of a weird investment. I don't know anybody hey, who hey, would Stevie, buy Jesus a Jesus Christ, what? it's me. What? I'm Jess. Holy sh! <laughs> oh God! Wow. Okay. Oh God! You must. I'm so. You no, must no, think no, I'm an no. idiot. You know, you see that he's engaged now, and this and this and that. But it's not physically challenging. It wasn't very emotionally challenging. But I think doing that, it kind of, <laughs> it made me underestimate Jess. <laughs> I went into it and I was like, I guess I can play pretend truthfully in this role, like sure, fine, whatever. Living in that, no. And then I had to. So it was a challenge, a nice yeah. challenge. So Coco, as someone with cerebral palsy, do you feel that tied into your choice of the script? Yeah, I could really much identify with Jess in a way because I want to be seen as a human being. I don't want to be seen as, oh, we have a disability role, so, oh, let's cast Coco. And also, because of my cerebral palsy, I mean, I spent a lot of time in hospitals when I was younger, and that's why I could identify with the story. And that's why I also wanted to tell the story, because I think we're all battling our little and big battles every day. You know, I'm curious because it's a, you know, she's a vet. She's obviously got this physical trauma, the play hints at post-traumatic stress. Mm. You know, we have a large veteran community here. I, were you able to take advantage of that or vets in any way to get a deeper look at it? Or was that more kind of typical research? I'm just kind of curious. How did you connect with that? Well, I somehow stumbled upon this guy. He went through this terrible experience. Hearing him talk about it, it was kind of like a wake-up call because I'd never experienced that. And someone who had gone through that, who was taking it on the chin and who was positive even still, seeing, you know, how it affected them in their lives and what they did every day, I don't know, it just, it was really intense. So when I came into this show, I had him in the back of my mind. The last thing you want to do is offend someone yeah. who has, you know, laid their life on the line. So um, there is an episode in the show, like, Jess has this PTSD episode where she flashes back. That was really tough. What? 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 What is that? What, what is that? What is that? Get off of me! Get inside! Get inside! Move! Don't leave two men walking by themselves! Get inside! Get inside! Move! Get inside, all of you! It was really, really tough. A lot of work, yeah. Probably the hardest I've ever worked. And people came up to me and said, a veteran after the show, it, like, oh my gosh. He came out to me and he was like, it was real. Like, I, I believed everything. And he said, that attack that you had, I, you know, it was moving. And it just made everything worth it. Because if somebody can go to the show and can watch it and can see that happen and go through it and believe that, but then watch them come out of it, that's all I can hope for. It blew my mind how how many people, like, I think it was the Monday and the Saturday performance that were, like, the most responsive audience. Like, we had so many people really leaving with tears in their eyes. And I thought, wow, that's so powerful. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to you as a play? What What's the meaning of the play? What do you think drew you to that play the most? What, what strikes a chord with you thematically? Mm, I think it's the fact that we are all warriors in a way. Like, before I proposed the play and I reread it, I had another take on the whole thing. And the role of the mother, like in the final scene, 
Um, Jess's sister brings home her mother, even though Jess doesn't want to, because she knows that she's not ever going to recognize her because she has dementia. And um, this very last moment in the play that the mom says, basically, she takes her in her arms and says, you're still my child. Mom. When I reread this play and I took another look at it, I could really see my mom in a way because she fought a lot for me, um, especially when I was younger and I couldn't do it by myself. Like, there are always people who look at you differently once you have like physical differences or disabilities. And I think that especially mothers of children with a disability have to fight even harder. And when I reread this play, I could see my mom and Jess's mom. And the, the longer we rehearsed on it, the more parallels I could find. For example, uh, there's this technique, it's called biofeedback. And I had this therapy when I was 10 to 15. And Jess's VR world, I could see so many parallels. The virtual reality thing I find uh, really interesting. So there's this virtual reality element to her therapy. Mm. And it keeps coming to those scenes. Open your eyes. <gasps> oh my god! Oh. <laughs> Is that a pond over there? Pond? It's a lake! Can you see? Beyond the lake is a mountain. The ice is slippery, but you need to cross to the other side and climb up. The game is very simple. Cross and then climb. Exactly. I'm curious, how does that relate to the story? What What do you think is important about this virtual world she's creating? What's important about that therapy? How does that tie to the piece for you? It's everything she's ever wanted. She's created this world where she can fully move like she used to be able to, and nobody looks at her differently. Because that's what Jess is constantly running from, is the reason why she doesn't want to see her mom is not only because she has dementia, but... She has dementia on top of the fact that Jess doesn't look like she used to. So it's so many layers and Jess is like, I can't handle this one last person because their father isn't in their life. So she only has her mom. And so for her, you know, not to be able to recognize her, but that I think with the virtual reality, she doesn't have to deal with people yeah. and mentally too, being free. She's so caged in all the time, caged by a walker, by her burns by her mind, by her, you know, PTSD. And also, there's one moment when she uh, screams to her therapist, yeah, but this at least is real, and this virtual reality world, it's not real, so why are we doing this? When am I going to be fixed? But this isn't real. This at least is real. When is it done? When am I fixed? Her response to that is so beautiful when she says... In order to, you know, live life, we have to let go of what was in order to enjoy what is. To get rid of pain, we let go. And when we do that, we see the world not for what it was, but for what it is. And so many people nowadays are living in the past, living in the future, living not now and they're living in these fake realities that they've created. These fake personas on social media, on this, on that. 
And for Jess, it's just an escape from all that. You end the play, Jess is looking out into the audience. What is Jess thinking? What is Jess (laughs) looking at? Overall, it's hard to take this play and not mesh it with your life. It's so emotionally connected. And I do have parallels of my life with Jess that, you know, it's hard. So when I'm standing there and I'm looking out into the audience, you know, it's supposed to be this kind of, um, I'm home. I've needed to create this home. And I definitely got flashes of that for my own reality, you know, blending together towards that last moment. Because you're thinking to yourself, God, the show's done. This is it. But you're still in it. And you're living in that. And it's a moment that you have of not only self-reflection of Jess reflecting in herself and who she truly is, but it was partially, you know, it was Isabel. It was me up there. And I was thinking to myself, wow, you know, I'm home. I'm happy Mm. and I'm performing and it's all good. Everything's great. It's almost as if the virtual reality has become reality, Mm -hmm. reality. That's completely true. I think that Like we were talking about virtual reality earlier, it's not just the virtual reality being that I can see different things. It's that virtual escape of the mind um, where you don't really have to worry about, you know, normal day stuff. And that's kind of just at the end. It's Mm. kind of like her whole life. She just wants to be seen as who she is. Mm. But she's married to that old image of herself. Mm. Now she has become wedded to her new self in life. It's Mm. beautiful. You know, what the audience doesn't know is that on your final performance, the playwright, Lindsay Ferentino, actually came. (laughs) How did that happen? Did you reach out to her? (laughs) That was funny. I posted a teaser on Instagram about the show, and she commented that she is about to be in L.A., and if it's possible to see the show... And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I I remember the night that I texted my group and I said, can you hear me screaming? Look who's commenting under our teaser. And so we managed to add on a fourth show for her. It was pretty surreal. Yeah, it's so surreal. Never say never. Like, it's insane what you can do. Were, Were you nervous before the show? More nervous? Was it? I think who topped the cake was Luke. Because Milo, bless him, the stage manager, comes up to Luke before the show and says, oh, yeah, the guy who originated Stevie, your role, he's uh, Lindsay's fiancé, so he'll be here, too. He played Stevie at the National Theatre in London. Yep. No pressure. And Luke was like, oh, my. Before the show, he was so nervous. I was like, oh, poor thing. But he did a great job. He pulled it off. And and the... (laughs) Milo was the one who who asked the actor, Ralph Little, how do you feel about seeing your role interpreted by another person? Yeah, he was kind of like, so how did it feel watching somebody else do Stevie? And we were all like, (laughs) no. What did he answer? (laughs) It was great. How was it like um, watching our version of Stevie on stage? Um, Yeah, I found Luke pretty annoying, actually. But mainly because I kept on seeing things he did and went, oh, sh- I wish I'd done that. That was much better. <laughs> Especially when it's the lines that you're so familiar with coming up, you kind of have this rhythm in your head once you've performed it so many times that you know how the lines are going to go. So to see somebody with different cadences, different choices, 
And especially lines where you think, this one's a killer. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, this is one that I always absolutely nailed. And then like, he'll do it and get a bigger laugh. I'm like, mother <laughs> <laughs> That happened a few times, actually. Thought he nailed it, uh, annoyingly. Um, it made me feel slightly jealous uh, that I wanted to do it again. So um, yeah, thanks, man. It was great. It was a great energy. They were so sweet. Yeah. Surprisingly, like, so sweet and inspirational and yeah. honest. He was really great. Ralph, you just got a BBC One show. Yeah. And he's coming over here to watch our sh Like, that's fantastic. That shows, you know, how and great And it was he is. also just a great atmosphere we had that night. And both were so humble. It was just fun to talk with them. What were some things you pulled out of that for yourself, for the project as a whole? Like, how did that affect you as the director of the project? I was really impressed how much time she spent on research and that she's so committed to truth. You can't worry about it, you just have to write the truth. And I think the best way to do that is research and writing about as much about your own experience in some sort of abstracted way. And there's different tools to help you write truthfully, but that's the goal, do you know what I mean? I think you avoid cliche by just trying to write truthfully. So for this play, I'm not a veteran. I don't have veterans in my family, but my best friend worked at a VA center, I volunteered at a VA center, I got to know some veterans, I, you know, transcribed documentaries, transcribed interviews with veterans, I talked to the people who built the VR system, which is a real thing, but then I set the play in my hometown, you know, and wrote really about my experience coming back to my hometown in a side angle way, and wrote about people that I know indirectly, so I always try to do a combination of, of both. She knows what she's writing about, and this is so important to find this truth that she's talking about. I am always having such a hard time with my writing because I'm so afraid of cliché and the key is truth and everyday life. There was a quote Ralph brought up, I can't remember where it was from, it was from a book. It was saying something like, every 20 years, everyone gets the same opportunities, whether it be at the beginning of those 20 years or the end of those 20 years. He was like, acting, it is so much not in your control, and you just have to keep doing it. I've been doing this for 20 years, and in England, sort of relatively well known, but I'm an absolute nobody here, so it's, it's great fun. And, um, <laughs> but you get taught all sorts of things that are much more useful than anything I could say about technique and how to act and how to break down scripts and all that kind of thing. But um, what I've found over the years that's the most difficult thing is managing your own psychology. David Mamet said over a 20-year period, everyone has the same opportunities. It might come in the first week after you leave drama school or it might come 20 years later, but it's about being ready to take it and mostly managing the kind of crushing worry and anxiety of being in between jobs, not getting jobs, watching somebody who you are absolutely sure you're better than getting the job that you should have got. You know, and I've worked relatively constantly, and it happened, I guarantee somewhere out there right now, Johnny Depp's going, I wasn't in a Marvel movie, that's bullshit. <laughs> Guaranteed, you know, that's, it doesn't matter. It never, there's no level you get to where that's not the case. So it's a hard game, it's a hard hustle, and you know, you all are going into it and wish you all luck because it is, it's hard. When you're working, it's the best thing in the world. And when you're not, you have to have some idea of controlling the, the worry and going, it's okay, and, and finding some other creative outlet and something that makes you happy and makes you, what's the Kelvin line? Um, go to work, go home, put something funny on TV, go to bed, hopefully next to somebody. This is all I've ever wanted, okay? to come to work, go home, 
put something funny on TV, go to bed, hopefully next to someone. Most people just want to be happy. I would love it if, if that was my life. But, you know, most of you are here because you've got creative ambitions and it's not quite that simple for most of us who want to do this for a living because that's not the gig, that's not the game. And he was talking about the fact that if we had asked him the question last week about what he was doing next, it very well could have been nothing. It's just about timing. And if you keep that creative outlet, it'll work. you got to trust that. In the end, it all comes down to stamina. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also what this play stands for. <laughs> like, there is one line in the play that she says, your body is not built to endure, it's built to recover. And it's really about this going, keep going, go through it. Mm. Mm -hmm. I was curious to meet you, Isabel, just because I'd only seen you with the skull cap and no, uh, and with you, know what's, you know what's funny? After the show, okay, I'm like, okay, God, I can go and I can drink some. All I wanted was water because I'm so hot under all that stuff. Because you know, I've got ace wraps on my body, I've got latex on my body, then I've got the clothes, then I've got the dress, the shirt, the bald cap, the scarf, <laughs> and I'm starting to walk backstage. And Anne was like, no, 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 don't leave. We, we got to do the Q&A. And I was like, can I please take the bald cap off? And she was like, yeah, 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 yeah. So I turn around and I just rip the bald cap off. And Ralph <laughs> comes up to me after and was like, I have to be honest, getting used to you being bald for that long of time and then watching you rip it off was disturbing. It was <laughs> not something that I was comfortable with. And I was like, oh, well, that's pretty cool. We created the illusion, if anything. Mission accomplished. First time ever wearing a bald cap. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Ever. Right. Ever. This was definitely a show that got better and better. I think that's why I was so comfortable when she came. Yeah. Because we had had a day. Saturday was kind of, I, I know all of our mentalities were like, we've been doing this. We've been doing this. It's so emotionally heavy. We had to do it one more time. And then having Sunday off and then going on Monday was like, we get to yeah. do this. Mm. It's yeah. not we have to, we get to. Yeah. And so I know I was buzzing. I was like, yeah. Yeah, definitely. One more time. I just wanted to say that not a lot of people do play productions at NIFA because for whatever reason, the thing is that everyone should be taking advantage of this. If you haven't been involved in a play production, you should be involved in one. Yeah. You should act in one, and you should try to direct one. Yeah. If anything, pitch something. Don't wait until it's too late to be like, hmm, maybe should have taken that offer. This is the space at NIFA that you can experiment. NIFA is truly a playground. Yeah. And a lot of times people don't use every aspect of that playground. They True. think, I'm going to go and I'm going to do the swings. Go do acting. I'm going to stick to that and I'm going to get in and get out. But if you just sit and you explore those opportunities, you can find so many amazing connections, people, opportunities. Yeah. I know you just made Anne's day. I will, I will tell you that this is just a phenomenal advertisement for the student-directed plays. She's going to be really, really happy. They're, they're good. I mean, one of the things that I hate to hear from people is this school isn't doing enough for me. Or Yeah, self-initiative. It's what you put in. Yeah. If you put in a lot, you'll get out a lot. Yeah. No one is going to bring you something. You mm -hmm. have to do it. Mm -hmm. In the end, it all comes down to you. Well, guys, congratulations, because it was an amazing show. I think that everyone responded really well. I think the fact that you could get Lindsay here was... Oh, my God. I mean, crazy. It's just, yeah, you talk about the universe kind of providing. Yeah. There, you put something out on Instagram, they come yeah. back. It was really... And honestly, it was a very emotional, very powerful show. Um, I think that whether, you know, you were connected to it or not, or you found that connection, we as an audience definitely felt that connection. That's the main thing. Well, Coco... Isabel, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. Uh, thank you so thank much you for so having much. us, David. Yes.
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Christian. <laughs> so that was Coco and Isabel, students in our Acting for Film program. This is The Backlot at New York Film Academy, and thank you for listening. This episode of The Backlot has been brought to you by the New York Film Academy, as always. It is mixed and edited by Christian Hayden, produced by Christian Hayden and myself, David Nelson, executive produced by Dan Mackler and Jean Sherlock. Special thanks to the Acting for Film department who puts on these student-directed plays, its chair, Linda Goodfriend, associate chair, and more, and all the students who took part as cast or crew in the production of this play. And a very, very special thanks to our guests, Coco de Broeker and Isabel Germain. If you are interested in learning more about our programs, please go to our website at nyfa.edu. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This is David Nelson. We'll see you next time. Now, I know I'm supposed to wrap up the show, but uh, I'm having a little bit of trouble doing that. It's, this is a new time for me. This is, this is exciting being behind the mic. You know, I was thinking when I was a kid growing up outside Newark, you know, a young man, a little confused.